Good evening and welcome to another episode of the Decameron Film Festival. We are in the middle of a spectacular week. Tonight we're going to talk to e. Michael Jones. Tomorrow we're going to talk to Alexander Dugin. And on Saturday we're going to talk to David Cole. And you can find the entire schedule on guidetoculture.org forward slash Decameron. That is guide to culture and culture is K-U-L-C-H-U-R.org forward slash Decameron. You can watch all the live streams on DLive, Entropy, and now also on Odyssey. And if you don't catch the live streams, you can always watch the videos afterwards on BitChute and on Odyssey. And before we start, I want to recommend that everyone go in and follow us on Telegram. Uh, follow Guide to Culture on Telegram because we do have a Twitter account, but Telegram is really the future of social media interaction. So go in there and follow us. It's Guide to Culture, Guide to K-U-L-C-H-U-R. And if you want to send questions, you can send them through entropy, entropystream.live forward slash GTK. And we'll get to the questions toward the end of the live stream. And now it's time to welcome back a very popular guest on the show last year we had him on he he got three times more views and i think that, than any other guest uh, always a, a popular guy to to have a conversation with e michael jones welcome back to the show thank you frody good to see you again very good to see you as well and i'll put your uh, url on the screen here culturewars.com that's right right that's yeah. right okay very good so uh Today, you've picked a very interesting film, uh, the Coen Brothers uh, film, A Simple Man from... A, a, uh, seri a Serious a, Man. A Serious Man. Sorry about that. I always get those two, uh, get that confused. Uh, but, but in any case, A Serious Man from 2009, which I saw at the cinema when it came out, and uh, it, it is... It uncovers some uh, some uneasy things under the surface <laughs> and, and the people who, who run Hollywood, etc. How come you picked this film? Uh, well, uh, I saw it right at the time I was writing The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Uh, by the way, the second edition of The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit is coming out uh, within days. It'll be available at culturewars.com. That's uh, 600 pages of new material, including two new historical chapters in three volumes, box set. So I was involved with that. And then here is uh, two guys, two Jews from Hollywood, who are saying something very similar to what I'm saying or related to what I was saying. You know, it, it's uh, why wasn't this film banned as hate speech? Why, why, was, uh, why weren't they arrested by the ADL? Why weren't they thrown in, in uh, Internet jail? Because it is, uh, in many ways, the most anti-Semitic film I've ever seen in my life. Right up, I get makes huge Zeus look like Fiddler on the Roof, um, but that's that's uh, that's the reason I was I was so interested in it. I had seen the Coen Brothers before. I'd seen the Oh Brother Where Art There, which I thought was a really good film. Afterwards, I saw uh, the Life of Llewellyn Davis, which was a, an awful film, absolutely one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life. And so uh, it's hard to tell which Coen Brothers are going to show up when they make a film. Uh, but this one was certainly certainly a revelation because it's an autobiographical film about them growing up as professors, children, uh, Jew, Jewish uh, pro children of Jewish professors in Minneapolis, which is not a big Jewish city, as far as I know, compared to New York City, certainly. And what it was like then and what their experience was with uh, the rabbis. And that's pretty much what the whole thing is about with a long uh, prologue at the beginning about the uh, Pale of the Settlement and the rabbi there, and the whole relationship of the Jewish people to their to their rabbi. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, and and they're portrayed as having a community more or less completely separate from everyone else. They're 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 not exactly described as integrated, right? No, and you would not be in a place like uh, Minneapolis at that point. Right. And and if you go all the way back. To the beginning, the historic beginning, uh, the whole point of the Pale of the Settlement was that they were not integrated into the culture they lived in. Uh, depending on when you're talking about, the Pale of the Settlement was either in the eastern part of Poland or the western part of Russia. Mm -hmm. When it was in the eastern part of Poland, uh, they had their own legal system and basically had a kind of autonomy uh, within that state that was unprecedented and led to uh, that Poland being called the Paradisus Judeorum. By the mm -hmm. time, by the time uh, 
by the 15th century, okay, let's say the beginning, uh, which was the beginning of the Converso crisis in Spain, uh, virtually every Jew in Western Europe had either converted to Catholicism or had left and gone to Poland. It was a massive uh, campaign that began two centuries earlier when Nicholas Donan, the rabbi who converted to Catholicism, met with uh, Pope uh, Gregory the Ninth and asked Gregory the Ninth what 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 he thought of the Talmud. And Gregory the Ninth said, "What's a Talmud? He never heard of it." And then when he explained it to him, the the the, the Pope was so shocked that he turned to Saint Raymond of Penaforte, who had brought Donan there, and said to him. Uh, he was the head of the Dominicans at that point. He said, if this is true, I, 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 I want you to confiscate those books and I want you to put them on trial. And if, if, it's, if they are found guilty, you're supposed to burn the Talmud, burn it. Now, I had an interesting experience. I stayed at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington and they asked, this around the same time, they asked me what I was doing. I told them I was writing a book on uh, the Jews. And uh, this is Ted. 10, 12 priests uh, invited me out to dinner. And I said, you know, yeah. And uh, it's about, uh, and I gave him the story of Nicholas Donan. And I said to him, now it's time for you Dominicans to return to your original charism, which is burning the Talmud. <laughs> uh, next night, one Dominican showed up for dinner. Uh, so, but but the, po the point I'm trying to, one of the points I'm trying to make here is the radical discontinuity, which now exists in the Catholic Church, uh, between uh, on the on the question of the Jews, in other words, right. what I, what I, if they had stayed and and before the discussion, I would have said to them, "Look, fellas, uh, are you uh, holier than Saint Thomas Aquinas and Saint Raymond of Penaforte? They're saints, as far as I know. You guys are not saints. They are you are in the same religious order as these people, and yet you're you're uh, you're unwilling to talk to me about what they thought was virtuous behavior." namely converting Nicholas Donan and also exposing the blasphemies and other things in the Talmud. That is, I would say, the heart of the crisis in the Catholic Church right now, this discontinuity on this very important issue. So the Cohen brothers raise the issue, you know, <laughs> of what it's like to be a Jew, and nobody, nobody knows what they're talking about. <laughs> nobody understood that movie. You can read the reviews, and you will never find my review. It's on the Internet, but you will never find it because Google will not allow you to find it. You have to type in my name and a serious man, and then you will find it, and then you'll know why Google doesn't want you to read it, I guess. Yeah, it, it is interesting, and, and I think the beginning is possibly – it's very sort of mystical – uh, and the beginning, uh, shall we describe the beginning? The beginning is, uh, the, the year is, is uncertain, but it is somewhere in, uh, would it be Poland or, or Russia? I think it's Poland because it seems, right. but you, you can't tell. You can't tell. Right. It's impossible to tell. It's right. the pale, of, it's the shtetl, it's the pale of the settlement. Right. We don't, we don't know exactly when. And they're speaking Yiddish. It's about a man, uh, a Jewish man, who comes home to his wife and tells him that he has run into some problem uh, with, uh, I guess, the, the, the horse and carriage or something like that. And a rabbi stopped to help him, and he invited the rabbi home. And the wife says that that rabbi is dead. Do you want to take over and, and explain a, a bit what a, happened? A dipic. A dipic, yeah. which is a, a a ghost, and so the uh, so they end up. Uh, if it's a dipic, then you have to kill it. But if it's a rabbi, you will be cursed if you kill it, and so it's you're you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. So right. so it's never really resolved. But the question is the basic question is: Do we kill the rabbi? Mm -hmm. This is the question that the Cohen brothers are raising. Because well, why would you want to kill the rabbi? Well, because the rabbi is keeping you imprisoned in a bad situation. Now, we know why it's a bad situation, because the rabbi and the Talmud are keeping Jews from converting to Christ. They are preventing them from having access to Logos, the full access to Logos that only those who are baptized can have. That is the main uh, delict, the main crime that the rabbis are committing. But why would a Jew uh, feel that way? Well, because the Jew is oppressed by the rabbi. And I think this is part of the whole story that they're trying to tell. I, in the review, I brought up the whole memoir that Solomon Maimon wrote uh, in the 18th century. Solomon Maimon was a protege of Moses Mendelssohn, 
went to Berlin at the high watermark of enlightenment in Berlin, when actually Jews and Christians were getting together under the guise of the enlightenment and talking to each other and, and intermarrying as well. Uh, and this is when uh, Maimon revealed uh, the secrets of the shtetl in darkest Lithuania, where uh, the oppression of the rabbi was made obvious. Now, I don't know whether the Cohen brothers read that. I, it's possible. <laughs> yeah. But that's certainly what the movie is about. There is this oppression of the Jewish people by the rabbi or, let's say, the, the ruling class. There is a ruling class among the Jews it used to be called the Sanhedrin. Now it's called the major Jewish organizations uh, like the ADL, like B'nai B'rith and all these things. And these are the people that uh, use the little Jews as proxy warriors to advance their agenda. And one of the guys who knew uh, understood this was Israel Shamir uh, when he was in the war. In the ID, he was fighting on the side of Israel in the IDF and the artillery barrage. In 1973, the artillery barrage is starting. And he thought, what am I doing here? These people are trying to kill me. They're moving me around on their on their chessboard for their benefit, not my benefit. And that led to his uh, conversion to Christianity. Right. And it seems like Jews have always been sort of uneasy about or they, they've been they've been divided on the issue of whether to integrate into surrounding society or to keep uh, you know separate to themselves and this was also an issue of course in in the early days of zionism where uh, back then uh, you know in, in theodor herzl's day for example many jews would reject his suggestion that they create a homeland for themselves because they were riding high in in germany and other countries so, so, so they didn't want to live in their own country. They wanted to live among, uh, you know, uh, among the Gentiles because they were very successful. So many successful Jews uh, rejected that. And so, it, it, would you agree with that? That they've always been sort of divided on that issue. Yes, yes. The, during the nineteenth century, the the two competing ideologies in the Pale of the Shtetl were uh, Marxism or socialism, mm. and and Zionism. And so Marxism is Jewish internationalism, where you have this messianic uh, commission to co convert the entire world to communism and every, free the, the uh, proletariat. And the other side of the coin is Herzl with his Zionism, where you just leave and go to Israel and set up your own uh, uh, nationalist country. So it's mm -hmm. gone back and forth between those two poles. Uh, both of the, both of them reject logos in one way or another, but it's at some point, like uh, let's say in the from the 1930s, let's say uh, certainly Marxism was the dominant ideology among Jews uh, all the way up. I say until in America until 1967, the Arab-Israeli War, where the whole Black Jewish Alliance, which was the the operating system for the civil rights movement, blew up, and uh, the Jews. Uh, got disgusted with the Schwarz's behavior, and they switched their allegiance to Zionism. And then that became the, the dominant thing. Uh, but again, uh, uh, with most recently, 2015, the riots in Ferguson, now we see George Soros jumping back in and creating a new Black Jewish alliance with groups like Black Lives Matter. So it, it always goes back and forth between these two poles. Right, right. So uh, if we continue on the movie then, uh, after this, this intro, and I, d I don't think it's obvious for, for everyone watching the film, I don't think it's obvious how the sort of prologue fits in with the rest of the film. How, how are they connected at all? The only connection is the rabbi. Right. What is the rabbi? So, you, so it's not kill the rabbi at this point. You have this, uh, this uh, poor uh, schmuck. Uh, to use their term, uh, who is a, a professor at the university, who's just a, a kind of loser, you know. Every, <laughs> he, he's also a kind of Job figure, mm -hmm. and he's constantly yeah. suffering, okay? He's yeah. constantly suffering, and like Job, he goes for answers, and he gets no, gets no answers. <laughs> uh, Job is sort of like when Job goes, his counselor's saying, well, if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong. And so he goes from bad to worse. Uh, nobody can give him any answers to any of the big questions. The, the Jews, the, the rabbis are intellectually bankrupt. 
They they have nothing to nothing to say. So the one the younger rabbi says, uh, "Look at the parking lot." You know <laughs> <laughs> what? What's that got to do with anything? You know his his wife has left him. His life is falling apart. He's got cancer, and the guy says, "Look at the parking lot." So finally, to, to, by the end of the climax of this movie, he gets to see the big rabbi, the 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 the, the mystical source of uh, Talmudic uh, wisdom here. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that uh, he's he's quoting Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, all he can do. He t- he stole the, 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 the whatever is the cassette player from the kid. He's been listening to Jefferson Airplane, and that's all he can say. Well, th- this is a guy who's involved in the intellectual life. There's that great scene where he's standing in front of the blackboard. <laughs> And the blackboard is huge, and it's got this huge equation on the blackboard that nobody can understand. And he's teaching physics that nobody well, – it's like Heisenberg's principle. The only thing we can be certain of is the principle of uncertainty. Yeah. And there's no answer to your question, but they're going, it's going to be on the quiz anyway, so you, yeah. better, you better learn it. And he said, I don't even understand it myself. And, and yes, the, the rabbis, all three rabbis are portrayed as these complete charlatans. The first one says, look at the parking lot. <laughs> and, and the second one tells these stories. And then when he asks, what's the point of the story? Oh, well, there is no point. So, so it's, it's, just, um, it's just gibberish. And the last one, he, he doesn't speak. He's just, you know, by his charisma, by his presence, uh, so, so, so there is no substance in anything there. What, what do you think the point is of that? It's nihilism. I, right. I think after years of thinking about this thing, I think these two guys are complete nihilists mm. who have been spectacularly successful in their nihilism. Mm. Uh, I think that they're complete. So I think that uh, are they are they, they have something serious to say about uh the the situation of Judaism being a Jew now, do they? I'm, I'm not sure. The the closest thing I can come to is at the end, where there's a very dramatic ending, where they're going out, they're in the schoolyard, and suddenly there's a tornado approaching. Mm-hmm. And uh, they better get out of there, get into the basement quick, and there's the rabbi's there, and he's got the key, and the key doesn't fit into the lock. And that's <laughs> it. It ends. So they were all probably all killed in a, by the tornado. So there's there's a, 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 I think what we're saying here is there is a disaster over the horizon. Now, when you're a Jew, there's always a disaster just over the horizon mm. because of the cata, cata, catastrophic decision your leaders and you made, your, your, the Jewish people made, when they killed Christ and abandoned the Logos and decided to go create a, a history of anti-Logos behavior, otherwise known as revolution. That revolution is going to come back to you. It always does. There's always a kind of blowback for revolutionary behavior. And I think that's what the Jew fears. He fear, he has it, his whole life is determined by fear. All you, to, to prove that, all you have to do is go to an IPAC convention. You know, where these people are, they, they are so powerful. The, the, um, the, the, the representatives of the most powerful nation on earth have to stand up 26 times and give Benjamin Netanyahu a standing ovation. Because if they don't, uh, the ADL and IPAC are there to take down the names of anybody who's not 100% on board, and they will work to get these people driven out of Congress the next day. Now, that's real political power. And yet at the same time, they are full of fear. And it's nothing but fear at the IPAC convention. So, you know, who's going to be the next Hitler? Well, it was Ahmadinejad for a while. I don't know. It'll probably be you sooner or later or me. (laughs) There's always going to be a next Hitler because these people are consumed with fear. What what is fear a manifestation of? It's a manifestation of lack of love. Fear is useless. What is needed is love. Perfect love drives out fear. This is what the gospel tells us. So if your life is driven by fear, you don't have any love in your life, and that's part of the problem here. How do you deal with that? And this is the way the Cohen brothers tried to deal with this issue. Uh, there is this, uh, this um, on a side note, there is this documentary also about 10 years old called uh, defamation. I think it's called defamation by right. an Israeli filmmaker. Yeah, and, and what he what he describes and portrays in that film 
is how this sort of paranoia and hatred toward outsiders and, and fear of outsiders is reinforced by by the, by the Jewish sort of narrative, the community, right. that they're reinforcing right. this sort of fear uh, to, to sort of keep them together. That's a fascinating documentary. It is. It is a good doc. The best part's the beginning where he asks his grandmother and she starts going off about how you can't trust Jews and so <laughs> on and so forth. It's real it was really funny. But it is it's a great documentary. And in there you've got Abe Foxman going to the Ukraine. You got you got millions and millions of dollars and guys doing research on completely insignificant stuff that that has no meaning whatsoever but they are going to sew this narrative together of uh, an impending holocaust once again and thank god the ADL is here to prevent this for us for uh, pre uh, pre prevent this from happening mm -hmm. the AD the ADL by the way just went after Tucker Carlson uh for using the word replacement with regard to migration in in Europe as but also in America right and uh, the ADL said this was anti-semitic and uh, tried to get him uh, fired. Uh, of course, a Jew at uh, Fox News had to defend him, and so the whole thing died down. But one of the results was that 150 ra no, no, 1,500 rabbis attacked the ADL mm -hmm. for overplaying it's overplaying the hand and making Jews odious in the sight of of uh, the rest of the population. There seems to be some sort of. Um, uh overreach and and they're yes. overplaying their hand it, it yes. seems to be that the the way uh, history goes that is. repeatedly exactly that's exactly the way now why is that well because you don't know logos no wait a minute everybody knows logos you uh, i think you have to rebellion. explain that term uh, because I, I, we we can't we can't expect everyone listening to this to, to know what, what? What, what you mean by what? that what you mean that you have people in your audience that didn't study greek <laughs> What kind of operation is this? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, logos is the Greek word for uh, reason, for word, for speech, for discourse, for the order of the universe. And so the thesis of the Jewish revolutionary spirit is basically when the Jews rejected Jesus Christ, they rejected the logos incarnate. That's the way St. John described him in the gospel, the Logos incarnate, the Logos. This is the order of the universe now concentrated in one person of the Trinity. Come down to earth to redeem this earth. And the Jews, whose Messiah he was, killed him. They killed him. And so they've been bearing this, this burden for uh, 2,000 years now. This is, this is what's going on now. When, when you're in rebellion against Logos, you don't know limits. And if you don't know limits, you always go too far. And that's oh, the story of Jewish Jewish history. And the, uh, so in the Middle Ages, uh, you're, he, the Jewish moneylender comes in and he, he gives the prince uh, a, low, a good deal, low interest rates, and then he gouges the general population at 43 and a third percent per year, which is un, makes it unrepayable until the point reach, they reach the point where basically we can't take it anymore. We know where the Jew lives. We're going to burn his house down and all his records and the king will force the king's hand and the king will ban him, ban the Jews from that country. That happened over a hundred times. Mm. And of course, the Jews see it as an ex more examples of anti-Semitism because Jewish behavior never figures into this retaliation. They simply cannot factor that into this. All I'm saying here is that, yes, overreaction is always a part here because the Jew doesn't know the boundaries, because he doesn't believe in Logos. And so he's constantly stepping over. He's constantly going one step too far and causing a reaction. So uh, to let me try to unpack what you're saying. You mean that they um, that nihilism sort of originates with them rejecting uh, truthfulness and logic and basically a sort of... Uh, uh, shall we call it lawyerly, uh, the nature of their discourse, which is basically to uh, to impress rather than to seek truth, to to sort of uh, to 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 persuade and to mislead with language rather than to seek the truth. Is that what they're? Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, uh, but I'm talking about it. It manifests itself at in different ways at different periods in history. So to take right. the history of the United States. The, the Jew is always enraged by his outsider status. He's always enraged at the, the, the customs of the country that has taken him in. 
And he always feels it his job to overthrow those, uh, what he considers irrational restrictions on human behavior. He, and so he's always portraying himself as the cultural freedom fighter. And so in the United States, that manifested itself because they established Hollywood mm -hmm. and took over basically the film industry. Uh, uh, they, they, uh, they were constantly transgressing boundaries, sexual boundaries, until the Catholic Church had a showdown and defeated them in the 1930s and imposed a production code. Well, as soon as you propose any type of code on the Jews, they're not going to be happy because they don't believe in codes other than their own code. And so for 31 years, they were annoyed and they broke the code in 65 with a Holocaust porn film called The, the Porn Broker, which totally befuddled the Catholics because the Catholics were now saying, oh, they're our friends. Why are we doing this to our friends? And so as a result, they were constantly uh, marching the march through the institutions, overturning one law after another, uh, like abortion, like uh, obscenity laws. Uh, and and the more they did it, the more unhappy they became. I, the classic example of this is Philip Roth, the author of Portnoy's Complaint. A biography just came out. If you read Philip Roth's books, the more honor you get, honors he got in life, the more unhappy he became because he had this cosmic uh, grudge against Logos, a cosmic grudge against it. And no matter what he did, he was still unhappy because there was still some type of Logos out there. He's like the Grinch who stole Christmas. I think the Grinch <laughs> was a Jew, by the way. <laughs> and he's, there's somebody in Whoville who's still happy. <laughs> I, I got to stop that. <laughs> Even though I stole all their Christmas presents, there's somebody down there who's still happy. <laughs> This, this is the I, I think that's going to become out. a good soundbite. <laughs> you can quote me on that. <laughs> yeah, I think people will. So, I, I hope so, the ADL is listening. <laughs> they probably are. So, uh, yeah, one of the aspects of this sort of Talmudic behavior and also the, the, the behavior of, of lawyers, and I think it's portrayed in this film that they use a whole lot of words, but they're not saying a whole lot, right? They don't, like he says, I don't even know what this means. No one knows what it means. The, the rabbi is telling a story, and at the end of the story, okay, so what are you trying to tell me? What's the point? Well, who knows what's, what, what a point yeah. is? So, <laughs> what a, so what about the goy's tooth? Uh, there is no point. That's the Talmud. That's precisely yeah. the Talmud. So you've got a contradiction in terms here. You've got a book whose purpose is to destroy logos the, you you find this it goes all the way through from the beginning of the talmud up to a guy like jacques derrida the the french philosopher who came from a long line of jewish rabbis in, in, in algeria his whole point was to write metaphysics to deny that there's any type of thing as being well this this is a contradictory project and that's precisely the, the gist of the Talmud and precisely why you have this kind of frustration, this constant frustration on this poor schmuck, the professor who's the main character of, uh, of a serious man. Because we, by nature, are creatures of Logos and we seek to find some type of understanding. And yeah. he's immersed in a milieu where they're constantly thwarting that understanding because if you get too close to Logos, it may lead you to Jesus Christ. <laughs> and we don't want to, we don't want that to happen. So we will we want to pro pro prohibit all meaning. All meaning is prohibited except our meanings, which doesn't have any meaning anyway. There seems to be um it se that seems to be an end in itself uh for for many of these intellectual uh shall we say currents or or trends for example, the Frankfurt School, it's, it's not very clear what they're saying. They're, 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 they're manipulating through language, but it's not very clear what they're actually saying because they, they rule through obfuscation. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the motto of, of the Mossad, right? To, by deception, um, rule by deception, right? And, and, and that is, uh, it, it seems to be very deep in their culture, um, and I think it's it's brought out in many aspects of the film that a lot of this stuff that sounds very profound and sounds is supposed to sound very profound to impress people, actually completely lacks substance. Uh, for right. example, this the, this book that uh, his, Arthur, his brother, uh, writes, the Mantaculus, 
which I think which was works, invented by the for way. the film. <laughs> which works. <laughs> it's crazy, but it works. <laughs> what what, what is it? Is it invented for the film, or is it a real thing? No, no, it's it was invented by it was invented yeah. by some type of kabbalistic uh, uh, book or other. But it, 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 right. I guess you, he he he. What did he do? didn't he bet something, and it turns yeah, out yeah, he yeah. won he won the lottery because of the miraculous. Doesn't yeah. make any sense, but it happened to work th this time. The yeah. the point the only the only antidote to this f hopelessness is mm. immersion in some type of messianic politics. So that you will really get involved with overthrowing the pro, uh, you know, capitalism, and then that goes bust. But wait a minute, we found uh, abortion. Uh, uh, well, we got that. Uh, so what? So what, no, it's gay marriage now. Let's go. Let's go gung ho on gay marriage. Well, we got that too. So wh what do we do now? Well, we sink into this uh, malaise because we have nothing else to destroy. What else are we going to destroy now? Tra I know transgenderism. We'll destroy ourselves. And so you have this fat Jew from Pennsylvania who thinks he's a woman <laughs> basically killing himself by by uh, having these uh, horrendous uh, hormone treatments and an operation that castrates him. This is the, the ultimate expression mm. of, of, of Jew. But but the, the, the intellectual expression of what I'm talking about is nihilism. Right. What this the I think the Cohen brothers know all what I'm talking about. They know this whole history of Jewish involvement in messianic politics and they know it's all crap and they're not going to get sucked into it. And the the distillation of all this is nihilism where everything is crap. Everything nothing nothing makes any sense. Mm. And that that's that's the philosophy. That that's the impression I get from the these movies. They they are fine as long as they can ridicule something. <laughs> because because you're being a parasite on something else, mm. and they did, and and many ways that uh, oh brother where art there was a, a kind of funny it was a funny movie about uh, but it was ridiculing the South during this period of time. Oh, so yeah, now yeah. so so now you're ridiculing Jews themselves. Well, why not? Why not? They're fair game in this kind of nihilistic uh, uh, um, nihilistic uh, uh, trajectory. Mm. But I think I think if we take a step back. That's the Jewish artist, in a sense. I'm doing I'm doing a book on aesthetics right now, mm -hmm. and you know, beginning with the Italian Renaissance, brilliant uh, step forward in painting. No one had ever done paintings like this before, ever. And then mm -hmm. going to the uh, the uh, German German uh, uh, contribution to music in the 18th and 19th century. No one had ever written music like Beethoven before that. Mm -hmm. And so, where does where does the Jew come in? <laughs> well, uh, the Jew comes in after Wagner with Arnold Schoenberg, mm. uh, who was a, became a Christian in Vienna, uh, and his wife living in Bohemia in Vienna, and his wife uh, has an affair with an artist, and he is so mortally wounded by this that he not only he 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 breaks with Christianity, he goes back to being a Jew, and he declares war on music, war on the <laughs> Western music, and the first manifestation is atonality. Uh, now, this was a man who was a devotee of Wagner. Verklärte Nacht is Wagner's Tristan in a mm -hmm. smeary version. That's what his brother-in-law said. So now he's declaring war on tonality, the eight-tone period. And then he goes into 12-tone music, which is which is completely totalitarian. Everybody hates it, but he <laughs> loves it. He loves it because it's an attack on music. And so when the Americans win the war, they make that to punish the Germans, they make Schoenberg mandatory in Germany. <laughs> And this, Wagner this is wrote what a, Wagner wrote a book, uh, a short book on on Jews and and music, and uh, the it's so many many years since I read it, but I think he brought out many good points there. Where they they are they always caricature things that they do from our culture because they don't take it seriously. It's sort of sarcastic from a distance. Um, so, so would would you agree with that? I that, think that, that, I think that's right. I think that's yeah, right. I think, I think I, it's a, I, I think it's if, a great point. If there were ever a man who is sincere musically, mm. I mean, really wearing his heart on his sleeve, it's Beethoven. I mean, right. you are just swept up into some type of emotional drama that this is the first man in the world who ever portrayed this type of emotional drama in music, and he's incredibly sincere and straightforward mm. with you. Okay, right. well, where does that lead? 
Well, have you seen Clockwork Orange? Maybe we should do (laughs) an interview on Clockwork Orange someday. (laughs) We should, yeah, yeah. Uh, Because guess who the villain of Clockwork Orange is? Yep. It's Beethoven. Yeah. I hadn't. I, I I was I was too poor to see this movie when it first came out. I couldn't afford a movie ticket back then. I wasn't even born. <laughs> yes, uh, and so I didn't see it then. But I'm shocked. I am absolutely shocked at the animosity that Stanley Kubrick has towards Beethoven in this movie. Why? Why is that? Because you can't do anything a close, uh, anything close to what Beethoven did. In your ability to move people, so you're good at blasphemy, and you're good at uh, nudity, and you're good at uh, you know uh, rape sequences, and all this other type of stuff that just shocks the hell out of everybody in 1971. But what exactly is your point? You don't have a point. You're dependent on tearing down something that you will never achieve, namely Beethoven. Beethoven's achievement. To be Sam- fair to Kubrick, though. To be fair to Kubrick, though, I do think that he. Uh, that's not necessarily his own position, but rather he is portraying or caricaturing uh, a, a sort of a modern worldview that is hostile to that kind of sincere passion. Um, I think he's mocking that view in a way in that film. You're, 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 you're too, this is too abstruse for me. I, I don't, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting lost here. I, 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 the, I, the crude association of Beethoven to the Nazis in this film, I think is pure Jewish. And I think it's, I think this is Kubrick expressing his sincere convictions about that. Interesting. And and projecting it onto that poor, poor guy, Alex. And it is, it is obviously a critique of medical practice. It's, it's, if if Foucault, if Foucault didn't write the the scenario to this uh, film, he certainly saw the film and wrote his books based on uh, what what was what was going in general in the culture at this point, mm. uh, a repudiation of psychiatric medicine as of the 1950s, electroshock therapy. It's in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, mm-hmm. o- other films at this time, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also in Foucault. And so there's a, a legit, but that's Burgess. I don't think that's I don't think that's Kubrick. I think that's Burgess. Well- I mean, as, uh, my my interpretation as I as I see the film is that uh, you know the, the name. So you have the clockwork, which is uh, man made, engineered, and you have you have the orange, which is a which is a biological, natural thing. Uh, and the the problem is that there is a conflict in in socially engineering people because you have to socially engineer away a lot of what makes them human. And what makes them human is, in part, the sincere passion in music and 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 other things. And and when you remove uh, those passionate aspects of of man, you you get this uh, um, lobotomized creature that you have toward the end. Uh, and I I think he's sort of uh, well. Uh, let's not get too far into a Clockwork Orange, here, but 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 yeah, uh, it, it is a brilliant film. I'd li- I'd love to talk about. But it. I I mean, it's suffused with Jewish animosity toward Western culture. I mm. I don't think there's any way to get around it. Or mm. t- take another uh, artifact of around that time. Take Leonard Bernstein's Mass. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a long tradition of man. Bach wrote a man. He was a Protestant. He was a Lutheran, and he wrote a beautiful mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mozart wrote a mass. Beethoven wrote a mass. I mean, it's just part of the Western tradition of music. And so Leonard Bernstein is asked by the Kennedy family to write a mass. And what happens? The inner Jew comes out. <laughs> and he had to write, uh, uh, include blasphemy as part of his mass. You know, uh, he, uh, why, would you, why would someone do this? Why would he do mm. this? other than some type of inner internal Jewish compulsion. Why would you right. want to offend the Kennedy family by doing something like this? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is very typical, this sort of uh, the, the, the ironic distance and the, the lack of sincerity, this sort of sarcasm, sarcasm uh, and, and this inability to, to actually um, to, to actually do do it sincerely do it do it 100% and i think that's definitely separates uh, a lot of jewish art from from european art from western art uh, simply the fact that although many jewish artists may have the the technical skills 
the, the, the passion and the, the sincerity isn't there. I would dispute that statement. They don't mm. have technical skills mm. because these things go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. You you do. So what you end up with is uh, the Jews taking over art through finance, which is what mm -hmm. they did. Mm -hmm. And they took it over at a time when they basically when the whole art world moved away from Mimesis, which is to say in New York City uh, after World War Two with the rise of abstract expressionism. Mm -hmm. Now, may maybe you differ on this, but I don't see a whole lot of technical skill in Jackson Pollock. <laughs> no, there are other artists, though. Uh, I mean, Jack, and now I'm not, he's not a Jew, but I mean, he was promoted by the Jews. And what you mm. saw over this period of time was a complete collapse mm. of the great tradition of Western art. Collapse yeah. in art, in the visual arts, collapse in music, uh, collapse in literature across mm. the board because they took over in all of these areas and they redefined them as what the Jew does. So you have the the uh, uh, the the artist in England, a lady who can draw stick figures, but she got the job because she's a, she's a Jew. <laughs> yeah, what I'm getting at is is that I think that a lot of uh, so, something that I've said in the past, for example, is that the, the most Jewish filmmaker is a non-Jew, Wes Anderson, uh, because he he embodies that archetype of of this sort of mockery and sarcasm and caricature in his films and and they just feel extremely jewish although he isn't jewish but he is a part of that culture and i, I that that is that is what i uh, associate with with uh, their sort of cultural attitudes when they create western culture i mean when they create well, their own culture that might be there might be something completely different yeah well yuri skelstein said we're all jews now and that is mm, part that's, that's part true. of the problem because because these people control the media, we all start acting like Jews. And mm. we, we adopt this kind of sarcasm, this kind of ironic attitude, this kind of campy attitude toward reality. It's not as mm. bad now, but it, well, I think that this characterized the 60s to a large extent. Because mm. to a large extent, the Jew was in, invisible in the 60s. Mm. I mean, you know, okay, so it's Abby Hoffman. So what? He's a hippie. He's got that long hair, right? Well, this mm -hmm. was a kind of uh, identity that he took to disguise the fact that he was basically a Jewish revolutionary. And mm -hmm. we didn't know it. You know, Ira Einhorn. Uh, I don't know whether you know about Ira Einhorn, but he was the guy, a Philadelphia guru who uh, loved uh, stooping shikses mm -hmm. and found this cute chick uh, from uh, Bryn Mawr, the college right outside Philadelphia where I grew up. And uh, he was also the MC for Earth Day. In Philadelphia, 1970, I was there. The MC, I thought, this is the guy, the most obnoxious guy I've ever seen in my life. And I knew a lot of obnoxious <laughs> people back then. I didn't think he was a Jew. It didn't. It just never crossed my mind to say he's a Jew, and he's acting out this Jewish fantasy where you basically just take control of a big operation and make it all about you. And at the same time, he was being the center of attraction there. Uh, the body of his girlfriend was basically dripping blood through the floor of his apartment onto the people below him because he had chopped her up and stuck her in a trunk. Uh, this man went, then went on the lamb. He was supported by the Bronfman family the entire time he was on the lamb and eventually ended up uh, being brought back and died in prison not too long ago. I'm saying that uh, revolutionary moment, the Jew was invisible, and that's when they're really dangerous. Because you don't know, you're being led around by an agenda that you don't understand. That is different than today. Thanks to, uh, I think, discussions like this, where we're allowed to talk about what, what's really happening. Like Barbara Lerner Specter and the immigration crisis in, in Europe and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, a film like A Serious Man. So, uh, going back to the film, uh, the relationship between the the community and the rabbis and their religion in a way um seems to be kind of hostile it seems to be uh not not a very loving relationship and it sort of makes me wonder do you believe that they actually is it a completely worldly religion or do they actually believe in uh, uh, an actual god or a, a supernatural uh, being or, or something outside of just the worldly things? Is it is it just a sort of a, a tribal world philosophy or is it an actual religion? 
Well, you'll have to tell me which Jew we're talking about. I mean, I, Rabbi Dresner, Rabbi Sam Dresner was a fan of mine. Every time he, every time he met a Catholic, he told the Catholic to subscribe to Culture Wars magazine. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, you know, uh, he wrote a book, uh, Can Family Survive in America? And he had things to say about people like Woody Allen that would have landed him on the ADL's hate list. Uh, mm. So he was obviously a man who was serious about uh, being truthful and about the whole situation, I think he sincerely believed in God. Uh, uh, how how God's going to judge him? I don't know. That's up to God. I know that baptism is necessary for salvation. I don't know. It's up to God to, to do this type of stuff. But right. there are always there are always people like this, and they're always kind of at odds with the general with the plan. It's it's not different. What is it? Is it any different than let's say being black? where suddenly you grow up because of a, a biological accident and suddenly you're dragooned into a political movement where you have to support Jewish organizations like Black Lives Matter. Is it any mm. different, you right. know, or being a homosexual and being sorry, you've got this terrible weakness that you're constantly getting involved in degrading sin. And uh, but now you're supposed to turn it into a political movement. You know, it's, it's the same <laughs> yeah. thing. Israel yeah. Shamir said being raised a Jew is like being raised by two lesbians. That's what he said. But in other words, people who are completely out of contact with Logos, who are net, yet the most important people in your life, who hmm. determine the way things are. That's the situation. That's the situation they're in. But at the same time, though, it seems like uh, Jews have a stronger sense of community than we have. So they have something working for them uh, that that you know most yes. of most of us don't have anymore. That's why all these white boys admire Jews. They want to be like Jews. They want to have <laughs> they they want to have the ethno state like like Israel. It's a it's a common phenomenon throughout history. They're called Judaizers. You know, it used to be like uh, religious sects, like the Puritans. They 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 were sick of Christianity. Of course, they had already a, a, a watered-down version called Anglicanism, so it wasn't the real thing anyway. But they wanted to be like Jews because we all want to be like Jews, don't we? Don't we all want to be successful in this life? Don't we want to have lots of cattle? And, uh, and well, I, I'm not talking about material success. I'm, I'm talking about a sense of community. They, they, they stick together, uh, and they, they are, whereas we are more individualistic, they actually... Uh, stick together as a community and i think you know that is a healthy way of living so so they're successful in that department yeah well espinoza <laughs> this community is used as a weapon against anyone who disagrees with the big the big guys the big right. jews so right. it's not a community it's a concentration camp that's right. what it is and 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 they they deserve that's I think that's the point of a serious man. It's not a community, right? It's a cult or whatever you want to call it, a concentration camp. You are being held hostage here, or some way in some way being held hostage with uh, the threat of expulsion, uh, being something that can ruin your life. That's what happened to Spinoza. Uh, he was expelled from the community. Uh, and so had to make his living grinding lenses, you know, in Holland. Uh, that's not a community. We don't mm -hmm. know what a community is because largely we've been uh, robbed of our communities, mm. largely through social engineering. And so mm -hmm. now I, I, I hate to I hate to do this, but I'm so sick of bishops in the Catholic Church announcing that we have to fight anti-Semitism and hate speech. <laughs> I feel like if any bishops are listening here, I have a request. When are you going to defend Catholics against hate speech? When right. are you going to defend the Catholic whose livelihood is threatened because some Jew didn't like what he said? When are you going to see, see what I'm trying to say here? Where is this community? Where is it? Right. It's been undermined and taken over by people on, on the outside who are now using the authority figures to punish people they don't like in the community. The same mm -hmm. thing has happened to the political process. We, uh, where is representative government? Can you find a place on this earth that has representative government? Let me know. I'll move there because the United <laughs> States doesn't have it. The yeah, that's certainly States, true. The politicians represent the rich people, the rich and the powerful who pay their bills and allow them to campaign. 
they don't not they never represent the people uh, who vote for them. That is mm-hmm. precisely the crisis that is global right now, and the global pandemic is the oligarchs finally saying we we are we see victory, we see it just over the horizon. We're going to crush whatever vestiges are left of representative government and impose our rule on the entire world. Mm-hmm. So we do have a couple of questions here. Uh, Dainikis Go sends one Ninjagini. He says, this is great. And one more Ninjagini. Thank you, he says. And uh, a bunch of lemons here. Let me just go over to a question on entropy. I found an inter- interesting question. Carlota sends three euros. Uh, nice super chat. He says, uh, Dr. Jones, what are your thoughts on Milo Yiannopoulos? Uh, do you think he has really given up his his degenerate lifestyle. Do you think he's sincere? Yes, I think he's sincere. I think absolutely think he's sincere. I was just on a show with him. Which mm. That's the first time we've ever gotten to talk. I, I think he is 100% sincere, okay? Mm. And I applaud him for being true to his baptismal promises and trying to reject what is a very bad habit, okay? And mm. I, hope, I hope he succeeds. But by the same token, it's a difficult habit to kick, uh, and it's a bad habit and, and there's, uh, it's going to require a lot of, a lot of struggle on his part. And, and it's not going to be, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, it's not going to be cheap grace. Right. Which is to basically say, I was, I was, I was lost and now I'm found and that's all we need to do. No, it's going to be struggle. It's going to be personal struggle. It's going to require penance and some type of self-discipline to overcome this thing. But yes, I think he's sincere. So, uh, and of course, for for anyone watching this who doesn't know what we're talking about, you're talking about homosexuality. Do, do right, you think that? Right. Do you think that's a choice? A choice? Of course it is. Of course it is. You have a predisposition, first of right. all, which may or may not be a, a, a question of choice. But you always have to choose to act on that predisposition. So mm. it's it's like alcoholism. You know, we we Norwegians. We people who live in these northern climates have bodies that metabolize alcohol in a peculiar way that lends makes us vulnerable to alcoholism. This isn't alcohol, by the way. This is water. <laughs> so, I'm not, <laughs> not accusing you. I'm not accusing you. I'm speaking from experience here. Right. Okay. So it, you, but you have to, you have to say, I'm not going to take the drink. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, free will comes in in every aspect here. This is a moral problem, and moral problems are based on free will. There is mm-hmm. no such thing as someone who is born a homosexual who has no choice in the matter. Right. Right. I mean, but but surely there are. I mean, aren't there? Um, you're born with. Some something happens with with your hormones or something like that. That 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 that. I mean, because you can see, uh, you can tell pretty early that people have these tendencies, uh, right? I mean, no, the people, no, is, is that not there's true? There's nothing biological whatsoever about homosexuality. It's father deprivation. That's the only plausible explanation. I tried to give you concede the the best case I can think of, which is alcoholism, which right. is your your metabolism is biologically determined, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm saying because you have a certain metabolism, you are more likely to want to drink. Drink affects you in a way that it doesn't affect. Uh, I, I've heard like people in the desert, people who <laughs> grow up in deserts, simply don't metabolize alcohol the way. Uh, people in northern climates do. But I'm saying, whatever that's the case, I'm not staking myself on that argument, but I'm saying basically that right. is biologically determined, but you're, it doesn't doesn't negate your free will because no, you still have to make a decision. Now, uh, again, if you mm. if you are uh, have years and years and years of drunken behavior or homosexual behavior, you have build up habits that are going to be very hard to break. And at a mm. certain point, it may seem that it's, I'm determined, I, Luther, I say Luther did this. Luther was in a situation where he failed morally, and then he just said, "Well, God made me do it," and he created a whole theology. That's a bad idea. That's not the way it works. <laughs> so basically, you think people are socialized into into that behavior? I'm saying it's father. Your relationship with your father and your mother determines whether you're going to have a predisposition toward homosexuality or not. Right. Okay, so uh, are, are there any, we've been going for almost an hour, are there any final thoughts on uh, a serious man that you want to get out there before we wrap it up? Yeah, I hope the Cohen brothers are watching this program. I hope you bring them on so that we can ask them whether they are really as nihilistic as they come across <laughs> in this movie. 
I told my friends in Iran to uh, invite them to their annual film festival. It would have been a great moment to have the Coen brothers show up in Iran and uh, talk to the, talk talk about their film. It never happened, but I think it should happen. That Iranians love film. They they just they, that's the one thing they love to do is go to go to the movies, and uh, they would be the perfect audience for the Coen brothers. <laughs> Fantastic! And you have a new edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. So, uh, have you added any new topics or just expanded yes, yes. the? No, no, there's there's a, a, a whole new historical chapter on the Aryan crisis in the 4th century, uh, which you cannot understand unless you factor in the involvement of the Jews. You can't, it's just part of that story. The same thing, a whole new historical chapter on the Armenian genocide. And again, I, I was just invited to go to Armenia. I didn't know anything about the place other than my father used to tell me about starving Armenians. Mm. The Armenian genocide is incomprehensible unless you factor in the Jewish revolutionary spirit because it infected both sides of that equation, both the Turks, the young Turks, and the Hunchaks and the Dashnaks, which were the Armenian uh, terrorists. And they had both been studying uh, with Narodnaevolia at, at Russian universities. Uh, Narodnaevolia was the first Jewish terrorist organization, and it was uh, Lenin's older brother and Lenin were both part of this uh, organization before there was anything like Bolshevism. So these are two chapters plus a whole bunch of uh, 10 years of articles on the same topic, including uh, Jewish privilege, which was a bestseller on Amazon until they pulled the plug on me, all of which has led me to believe that this is not, this is not a category of my mind. This is a category of reality. And you can't understand human history unless you understand the conflict between Logos and anti-Logos. And the main force of anti-Logos in history is the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So, uh, I mean, considering that, and this is a completely, this is a sort of a side side issue, but uh, what are your thoughts on on uh, the, Mar uh, is it called Marcionites, Marcionites, the 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 Marcion, the Marcionites, yeah, the Marcionites, yeah, who said that the Old Testament God was the devil, right? Uh, no, that's that's that, that's going to an extreme in the other direction that was rejected by the church. The right. the the Hebrew scriptures are uh, part of the Bible. Mm. Uh, they, they do they are not the possession of the Jews. They are the possession of the children of Moses. And we Christians are the children of Moses. These are our scriptures. The Jews, uh, Jesus made this very clear in the Gospel of St. John. When the Jews rejected Christ, they ceased to be the children of Moses. It's very clear. And so these scriptures are ours. And to reject them is to reject the word of God. That, that, hmm. That's that's a bad idea. So Marcionism is, was condemned rightly by the church as a heresy. And hmm. it's, it's easy to understand why and also why people would fall into that. That people are despairing. They don't see any hope on the horizon. And so they, they always tend to extreme measures whenever, whenever that happens. And this is one of them. All right. Well, uh, I, I don't think we have any more questions from the audience. And I think this has been a great conversation. So I want to thank you so much for doing this. And I want to encourage every, everyone, of course, to go in and follow Dr. Jones on culturewars.com. And uh, I want to mention also that I've started a new morning show, Wake Up on the Right Side, uh, every Monday to Friday at 9 o'clock in the morning, Central European time. So that's 9 o'clock uh, Swedish time, Stockholm time, for example. And you can send uh, news tips. You can join us in the Telegram group, WURS uh, chat uh, on Telegram, and follow us there. Uh, like I said, follow our Telegram channel, Guide to Culture, K-U-L-C-H-U-R. Check out the schedule. We'll be back tomorrow with Alexander Dugan. And if you want to support our work, you can go to guidetoculture.org forward slash donate. And I want to thank everyone who has supported us so far. So uh, thanks, everyone who's been watching, everyone who's donated, everyone who's been active in the comments. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you guys tomorrow morning and then tomorrow evening with Alexander Dugan. Good night.